Um, this morning, we are in week seven of a sermon series that I've entitled Revival. And my hope in this series is revival. My hope is that God would pour out the life of Jesus into our hearts and into this church. Uh, that he would give us a deeper experience of God, of his love, of his spiritual life. And that we would, in turn, bring that to the world. That the world would f- see the redemption, the glory of the gospel. Amen? That's what we're praying. That's what we're focusing on is prayer and revival. And uh, earlier in this series, I had mentioned uh, what Richard Lovelace in one of his books called The Two Precursors of Revival. And they're an awareness of the holiness of God and an awareness of the depth of our sin. That typically throughout history, wherever there's been a revival of faith, a revival of the Spirit of God, the two things that you see are an increased awareness of the holiness of God. And what do I mean by holiness of God? The holiness of God is that he is transcendently separate from us in his perfection. He is not like us. He is perfect in every way. And then a deeper awareness of our own sin. And by sin, I mean, you know, sin can take many forms, but it can mean our rebellion against God and his standard. It can mean just falling short of God's holy standard. And it can also just mean our brokenness, our twistedness inside that just causes us to always seem to pull against God and go away from him. So those two things, if you want to pray for revival in your church and your life, those are the two things you could pray for. Just an increased awareness of the holiness of God and an increased awareness of the depth of your sin. Over the past few weeks, I've been trying to dive a little deeper into the second part, the awareness of the depth of our sin. I've been looking particularly at the Beatitudes, which are the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And that term Beatitude, the Beatitudes, is Jesus describing the blessed life, the life that is blessed by God. The man or woman who God favors, who God approves of. So on the one hand, if you are looking to live a good life, a life that God blesses and approves of, then you should pay particular attention to the Beatitudes and what it would look like to live them out. And on the other hand, though, it's it's very countercultural, right? The, The Beatitudes, you read them and you realize that this is completely different than what the world says is the blessed or happy life. And so I want to continue to go through the Beatitudes this morning, looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, which is this. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, meek is not a word that many of you probably hear often today, right? I don't know when the last time was I heard someone described as meek. Even the last time that I prayed that God would increase my meekness. Unless you're familiar with a rapper by that name, you probably just don't use that name ever. Uh, Meekness, right? It's nothing that we're familiar with. And so I want to talk this morning about what did Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the meek? What does it mean to be meek? Why are the meek those who are blessed and favored by God? And what does he mean when he says the meek will inherit the earth? Even though we're all familiar with this line, I think most of us probably have little understanding of what Jesus meant and why this fits into the picture of who the blessed man is. So remember that the Beatitudes build on each other. It's not just random sayings, but they build upon each other. And so two weeks ago, we looked at how blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then last week, we looked at how blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So I want to begin by looking back at what those two mean and how this logically builds upon blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. So remember... He begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus begins by saying that the favor of God begins with a recognition of our spiritual poverty. 
our bankruptcy before a holy God. That we come empty to him. We don't show up with a spiritual resume, so to speak, right? Coming to God and saying, look at all the things that I have done. Look at how great I am. You should bless me. Jesus says, no. We come to him first and foremost, spiritually poor. It's best seen in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 to 14. Jesus said this, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus there paints the picture of the blessed man, the man favored by God as the one who's poor in spirit, who comes empty, who comes realizing, I am completely dependent upon the mercy and grace of God. Not the one who shows up with a spiritual resume saying, look at all the great things I've done, God. The man or woman who's poor in spirit is the one who knows that everything that we have in our lives is an undeserved gift from God. We've got nothing to give him except what he's given to us. It's like the song that we sing that says, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. Even the very breath I breathe is a gift from you. We are completely in your debt, God. We can't give you anything that you haven't first given to us. That's the poor in spirit. That's the one who's poor in spirit. He says God's favor is on the one who comes recognizing that he or she's got nothing to offer spiritually, but just comes recognizing that they're completely dependent upon God's mercy and grace. And as they come empty, he says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're filled with the life of Jesus. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Come empty this morning. Come empty this morning and he will fill you. Come poor in spirit and yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say that blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And we looked at this last week at how he builds upon the first week, the first line, blessed are the poor in spirit, that it's not just this emotionless fact that, you know what, I'm, I'm poor in spirit, I have nothing to offer, but He says, blessed are those who feel the full weight of that emotionally. Who see their sin, who see their brokenness before God, (laughs) and they mourn it. It brings them to tears as they see how their sin has destroyed their lives. How their sin has hurt other people that they love. How their sin caused the Holy Son of God to have to die for them. Blessed are those who mourn. Not just that they're poor in spirit. They mourn that they're poor in spirit. They mourn their sin. Blessed are those who look their sin full in the face. Don't look away. Don't rationalize. Don't minimize. Don't blame shift. But they look at their sin and they realize what it is and what it has done to them, what it has done to others, what it has done to God. Like the recovery movement teaches, they've made a fearless and searching moral inventory of themselves. They've admitted to themselves, to God, and to another person the exact nature of their wrongs. 
Jesus says they will be comforted. They will find grace. They will find mercy. They will find forgiveness. And blessed are those who mourn over the suffering of this world, who look at the suffering of this world in the face and don't look away, don't ignore it, don't run off to live somewhere where there's no suffering. They will be comforted. They will experience the eternal comfort that comes when Jesus returns and makes everything right. So that's where it begins. Remember, he's building upon these things, that you come empty, poor in spirit. And not only do you come poor in spirit, you come mourning, recognizing what your sin means, what it's done. What follows logically next? According to Jesus, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So what is meekness? First and foremost, meekness, it has a vertical component. It's about our relationship with God. And then it has a horizontal component between us and other people. Meekness has, let me see if this works. Nope. Let's go to the next slide. Meekness has the implication of a domesticated wild animal. Okay? It's like a wild horse that's been tamed and now submits to its master. So if you want to get a picture of what meekness means... You know, often people hear meekness and they think it means weakness because it rhymes, but that's not what meekness means. Meekness, first and foremost, it's like a wild horse has been domesticated and now submits to its master. It's strength under self-control. One definition that I found of a meek man, next slide, is this. The meek, the meek person is the one who feels that he or she is a servant in relationship to God and who subjects himself or herself to to him quietly and without resistance. Again, this is not weakness. It's power under self-control, disciplined in submission to the master, to God. That's meekness. So, next slide. The meek person is the one, first and foremost, who is submitted to God in trust and obedience. So think, okay, how does this logically follow from being poor in spirit and mourning our sin? Think about it. If you've realized your spiritual bankruptcy, your spiritual poverty, that you come empty, you've got nothing to offer God that he hasn't given to you, you're completely dependent upon him in it for everything, and you come mourning, recognizing that your sin has had devastating consequences in your own life and the lives of others, that every time you've rebelled against God, every time you've gone your own way, that it causes chaos and havoc, and that it caused the innocent son of God to have to die for you, Logically, we would recognize that it's better to trust God. That the wisest thing we can do is to stop trusting ourselves, stop going our own way, stop doing our own thing. But to submit ourselves to the one who loves us so much that he died for us, who created us, who knows what's best for us. Logically, that would make the most sense. To become meek. To submit ourselves like a wild horse tamed by its master. Submitting ourselves to his leadership. Because we know that God is trustworthy. We know that he gave his son for us. We know we can trust him because he loves us even when we were his enemies. And now that we're his children, of course he'd want to give us good gifts. And so the wisest thing we can do is submit ourselves to him. We trust what Jesus said in John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's Jesus saying to you, listen to me. I have life to the fullest for you. Trust me, I gave my life for you when you were a sinner. I gave my life for you when you were my enemy. 
Trust me. Don't be like this wild horse that has to be controlled by a bitter bridle. Submit yourself to me. Trust me. That's the meek person. First and foremost, in their vertical relationship with God, the one who has submitted himself or herself to the master, trusting that he loves you. As Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will but yours be done. In Psalm 37, in verse 11, this is where Jesus, that line first comes from in Psalm 37. We read this this morning as the call to worship. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. I want to read all of Psalm 37, 1 through 11 again. I read this at the beginning. But just pay attention to all the phrases that are used about the meek person and their relationship with God. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause, like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. Look at all those phrases. Trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Wait patiently for the Lord. Don't be swayed by what you see. Don't be swayed by evil men who seem to have success and to prosper. It's just a mirage, he's saying. It will not last forever. They will not be the ones who gain this world. They will lose it. The meek, he says, those who submit to the Lord, who trust in him, will inherit this world. So that's the vertical element of meekness. Who's the meek man, the meek woman? It's the one who... Like the wild horse who's been tamed by its master submits himself or herself to the one who loves them. But secondly, the horizontal component is this. It's the one who's humble and gentle towards others. Again, think through the logical implications. If you recognize, if you truly understood that you are poor in spirit, that you have no spiritual resume to hold before a mighty God, but that everything that is good in you is a gift from God, that you're dependent upon him for everything. And that you mourn your sin. You recognize the depth of hurt it's caused every time you've gone your own way. How does that impact your relationship with others? What would it look like if you were truly poor in spirit, if you've looked your sin in the face? I would say first and foremost it would be this. They're not easily offended because they know the truth about themselves. The one who is meek is not easily offended by others. Just in case you thought the vertical component was challenging, this is going to get really challenging for you, okay? This whole meekness when it comes to dealing with other people is going to get really challenging. Because it's very countercultural. It's very contrary to what comes natural for us. The person who is meek is not easily offended because they know the truth about themselves. If I have looked fully at my sin, not shifted blame to other people, said, well, I'm this way because of them. It's their fault. 
If I have not rationalized it away, well, you know, everyone does it, you know, not minimize it, not treat it like it's nothing. If I've truly been honest about the depth of my sin, recognize that the impact it's had on myself, my life, on others, on the kingdom of God, if I'm truly honest about that with myself, if I recognize that I am poor in spirit, dependent upon God for everything, then when someone says something about me, negative, someone insults me, someone cuts me down, someone points out my flaws, then guess what? They're only telling me what I know to be true. They're only telling me what I already know is true about myself. Call me irresponsible? Yeah, you're right. Call me mean? You're right, I can be mean. There's nothing that you can call me, there's nothing you can say about me that I don't already know to be true about myself. I know that I am a sinner in need of a Savior, desperately in need of a Savior. I know I'm spiritually poor. I know the effect it's had. And so I don't easily take offense. Because I can thank God that he's provided a Savior for my sin. David Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. In other words, if someone were to insult me, point out my flaws, (laughs) the correct answer would be you don't know the half of it. You don't even know. That's the meek person. The person who's humble and gentle because they know the depth of their sin. They are poor in spirit. They have mourned their sin. And so they're humble and gentle towards others. I know you're all relating to this, right? This is exactly how you are when someone insults you, when someone points out your flaws, right? We so easily just are humble and gracious, right? No, most of us, right? Most of us get defensive. Most of us argue back. Yeah, but you, right? Yeah, but you did this. Yeah, but you do this. Let's fight back. Let's prove that we're not as bad as they are. Let's prove that anything we've done is their fault. That's not the meek person. The meek person is not easily offended. Because for most of us, you know, maybe you were tracking with me the first couple of sermons. Like, you know what? Between me and God, you're right. He's a holy God. And you know what? I am a sinner in light of a holy God. And I can admit that to him. And I can own that before him. But how dare someone else point out my sin? How dare someone else call me out for my flaws? But the meek person knows they don't know the half of it. And so instead of fighting back and arguing back, they can accept the criticism humbly. Say they're probably right. The meek person entrusts themselves to God. They don't need to argue back. They don't need to defend themselves. Think of Jesus in 1 Peter. I'm sorry. Think of Peter's writing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 to 23, where he said this about Jesus. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 
When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So you might want to camp out on that one for a minute. Because here Peter's saying, this is your example to follow here. Jesus was perfect in every way, innocent. He had done nothing wrong. And yet, they insulted him and accused him of all kinds of terrible things. And how did Jesus respond? Remember he said, listen, I can call down legions of angels in a moment and destroy them. But no. He didn't retaliate. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to God, the judge who judges justly. And Peter says, that's your example to follow. That is meekness right there. The one who's not easily offended, who doesn't respond to insult by insulting back, by retaliating, by calling on down all the legions of heaven to destroy a person. It's the one who knows they're poor in spirit, has mourned their sin, knows who they are, has no illusions about their brokenness, And so when they're insulted, when they are called out for sin, then trust themselves to God. Humbly receives the criticism. You know, here's the the truth, the hard truth, that if we're truly meek, then we're going to see offenses and hurts as opportunities to show grace. Right? Can you imagine being, having that frame of mind that you are so meek that you're like, oh, look at this person insulting me. What an opportunity this is to show grace, to show the gospel. Thank you for this insult that I might show grace the way you've shown grace to me. That comes naturally to none of us, I know. But this is how Jesus said it in Matthew 5, 43 to 47. He said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? In other words, you love people who are nice to you and kind to you and say nice things about you and compliment you? Congratulations. You're on the same level as everyone else in the world. Anyone can be kind and nice to those who are nice to them. He says, you want to be like God? You want to showcase the gospel, the glory of the gospel? Think of those who insult you. Think of those who persecute you. Think of those who put you down, who speak unwell of you, who don't speak well of you. There's your opportunity to point people to Jesus. There's your opportunity to showcase the gospel by showing them grace, by forgiving them by treating them kindly in return. That's meekness. Second aspect of the horizontal relationship about meekness is this. They humbly serve others. Again, go back to the beginning. If you are poor in spirit and you recognize that every breath that you take is a gift from God, if you drove here in a car that was a gift from God, if you woke up this morning... With any amount of health, it's a gift from God. It's grace from him. If you had food to eat this morning, it's a gift from God. If that was your perspective on this world, that everything that is good in your life is an undeserved gift of God's grace, 
that you who are poor in spirit, you whose sin caused the death of the Son of God, deserve to be annihilated on the spot, but instead God in his mercy has given you not just life and breath, but so much more, has made you an heir along with Christ, has given you blessing upon blessing. If you get that, how would that change your attitude? You'd recognize, I have so much more than I deserve. Look at all the grace that I've been given and how it then would flow out to others. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 sums it up very well. Paul writes this. He says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Blessed are the meek. God's favor is on the meek. And what does meekness look like in our horizontal relationships with each other? First and foremost, it looks like those who don't easily take offense because they know the truth about themselves. They are gracious and love in return, even when they're insulted and persecuted. And it's those who humbly serve others. They know that they are recipients of so much grace, that they have so much more than they deserve. And so just like Jesus, they are willing to make themselves nothing, to take the very nature of a servant, to serve others, to bless others, to consider others better than themselves. Because, hey, look at all the grace I've been given. Let me share. Let me share this grace with others. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. It's been given to me freely. Let me share it freely with those who don't have it. That's meekness. You want to hear another passage that's really going to destroy your pride? Luke 17, 7 through 10, Jesus said this, Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? And after that you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Again, let me give you a minute to just... Think about that one. How's that for perspective? Jesus saying, you know what? Let's be realistic here. You're like a slave. You have been given grace. You've been given life. You've been given another breath to breathe that you did not deserve. Everything that you have is a gift, an undeserved gift of grace from God. (laughs) 
And so this is kind of a, a parable against entitlement, right? Against kind of like, why God, you know? You're not fair, God. This is the anti-entitlement parable. We're saying you're only unworthy servants. You've only done your duty. Those who are meek recognize it's all a gift of God's grace. How can I serve? How can I serve the one who gave his life for me? How can I follow in his footsteps? Because he was in nature God, and he took on the nature of a slave to serve God, to serve us, to save us. And so if he, in very nature God, if it wasn't beneath him to serve, to wash feet, then how is it beneath me? How can it be beneath me to lower myself to serve him, to serve others? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek, in their vertical relationship to God, are like that wild horse that's been tamed, submitting themselves to their master because they know their master loves them and knows much better for them how they should live than what they've chosen to do on their own. And the meek person is the one who is poor in spirit and has mourned their sin, and so they don't easily take offense because they know the truth about themselves. And they're willing to serve. Nothing's beneath them. Their master, their savior, laid down his life as a servant, and they're willing to do the same. So blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What does that part mean? What does it mean that we inherit the earth? Again, this is a very countercultural promise, because you think about who are those who possess the earth, who will inherit the world. Naturally, you think of those who are aggressive, those who go out and take it, those who have military power. Those are the ones who will possess the earth. Those are the ones who will inherit the earth. Get out there and fight for it. And here is Jesus saying, no. It's the meek. It's the slaves. It's those who serve others. It's those who submit themselves to God and to each other. They are the ones who will possess, who will inherit the earth. What does that even mean? So I think there's an already not yet component to this. That's one of the theologian's favorite phrases, already not yet, that there's a portion of this that is true already, and then there's a, the rest of it's going to be, you know, it's not yet realized. It will have it completely in heaven on that day. The already component is this. Again, go back and think about your spiritual poverty, okay? What it, if you truly see yourself as, you know what, I'm coming empty. I got no spiritual resume to offer. I am dependent upon God for everything. If you've already mourned over your sin and what it's caused, then you realize that your life is a gift of God's grace. Everything that you have, everything that you own, is a gift of God's grace. It's like Dave Ramsey, right? What's his standard answer? How are you doing? Better than I deserve, right? You know? That's the truth, right? How am I doing? Better than I deserve. I have more than I should have. And so if that's the attitude, that mindset that you truly had as you looked out in this world, then there is a sense in which the world is yours. You've already inherited this world. You've already possessed this world. Because everything's a gift. 
everything there is a gift. It's like Christmas morning. Every time you take a breath, every time you get in your car, every time you, know, you put on clothes, every time you eat food, imagine that kind of attitude towards life. This is such a gift. This lucky charms, such a gift. This friend here who hasn't yet rejected me, <laughs> you know, hasn't yet seen through me and said, I better run screaming. What a gift this friend is. What a gift that my, my, my hands are still working, my feet are still working. What a gift that I can still breathe. What a gift. Imagine. I think there's a sense in which that's what Jesus means, right? There's a sense, the already sense, that we inherit the earth. We possess this world because everything is all of a sudden new. It's a gift for us. 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 10, Paul said, Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance and troubles, hardships and distresses, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. It's a, it's, again, there's, there's a paradox there. He's saying we are completely poor, but we possess everything. Everything we have is a gift from God. Everything. We are joint heirs along with Christ. It's all ours to share. Everything belongs to our Father and he shares it with us. Having nothing yet possessing everything. And so I can be content. As he said in Philippians 4, 12 through 13, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So again, there's some already sense in which we're already possessing everything. We possess the world. We've inherited the world. Because instead of being like those who feel like, I don't have enough. Who look out in the world and envy those who don't have, who have what they don't have. Who aren't content with what they have. Who feel like, I just need more money and more food and more stuff and more and more and more. They don't have the world. They don't possess anything. They want more. But those who are meek recognize that everything is a gift of God's grace. And so there is an element of which we already have inherited this. It's a gift from God. But there's also the not yet component, I think, as well. That one day, he says, heaven and earth will be one. That he'll destroy evil and sin and suffering. That the dwelling of God will be with us. That we'll live on this renewed heaven and earth. And we'll inherit this world with every single blessing we could ever want. So that even we, if we have to give up things in this world, he will more than make up for it with what we have on that day. 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul writes, However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind is conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. That's why it says in Psalm 37, don't fret because of evildoers. Don't fret because of people who seem like they're going out and possessing this world. It's a mirage. It will fade away. They can't take it with them. But you will inherit the world. You will enjoy everything that is good forever with God. Blessed are the meek, those who are poor in spirit, who mourn their sin, who walk in humble trust and obedience, submitting themselves to their master, who act in humility and service towards others. They will inherit the earth. Amen. Lord, we thank you so much that despite our spiritual poverty, 
despite the fact that our sin has wreaked havoc in our lives and the lives of others and caused the innocent Son of God to die. Father, that you have given us grace upon grace. You've forgiven us our sins. You've put your Holy Spirit in us. You've shared with us all that is yours because we are joint heirs with Jesus. Thank you so much, God. Give us the eyes of the meek to be able to look at everything as a gift, an undeserved gift of your grace, to be truly grateful, to share with others freely out of the grace you've given us. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.